what is this episode six now uh, I believe so. I, wow, it's weird. We've done enough to stop being able to keep track. Either that or we're just getting old and brain cells are just dying constantly now. Yeah, I think five is about where I started losing track on the vlog, too. Huh. <laughs> it's are an extraneous you, piece of information. Are you up to the mid-30s yet? How many have you done? I don't know. YouTube tells me 50, but I don't feel like there's 50 in there. Yeah, that doesn't sound quite right. I think I'm at like 40. Gotcha. Approximately. Well, I came, I came into this episode so prepared. Like, as of the last day and a half, I was, I was doing research and looking at things. And then I got three hours of sleep last night. So, <laughs> so most of the thoughts that go along with my notes are just non-existent now. <laughs> so I'm just going to wing most of this from whatever four brain cells I have left. That's uh, what we do best, is winging it. I was reading a bunch of things about podcasts, and they're like, write a script and send a pre-made list. I'm like, yeah, we don't do any of that. <laughs> and I, I don't have a problem with that. I actually think that the quality of our podcasting would probably diminish if we planned too much. Yeah, I think that uh, a lot of our strength is in our ability to veer into the topic and then just enjoy the veer. Sure, sure, sure. I mean, I have a ton of stuff on the list for today, and I guarantee you we probably won't cover half of it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So, uh, what's on your list for today? Let's jump right in. Um, I have been, I, your, your, your vlog kind of forces me to take interesting dives into YouTube in ways that I wouldn't normally. Um, you know, you, basically the, the two vlogs that I view on a constant basis are you and uh, Casey Neistat. So, you know, between the two of you guys, like I, I, I see the similarities and the differences. Mm -hmm. Um, I also see... You know, there are occasions where, where, like lately, for example, you've been doing a few vlogs that are a bit more narrative, and I think that it's a really interesting, like, I, I you know, I remember I remember um, us having some communication about it, and you saying that you don't intentionally do narrative, but it just happens because of what you're doing that particular day. Do you find that going into some vlogs sometimes, like if you're, you know, that one, that one, whatever, hippie crystal convention that you went to, like, was there, was there some kind of concerted effort to to build a plan into how you were going to shoot that day no not at all i mean uh first of all i i had no idea we were even going to that 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 day uh, that's a lot of that's uh, <laughs> i had no idea we were going to uh the healing arts festival that day but i think it just basically what it comes down to what i'm realizing is it's just a matter of having the camera at ready at all times i think that's why um I bought that hip mount, or not hip mount, but a hip pouch for the mm -hmm. camera. And after like two days, I realized that I had wasted my money because I never put the camera away. It's always in my hand or sitting on the table, especially mm -hmm. now that I have the Gorillapod because I just sit it on the desk and uh, the desk, the table, the counter, the wall, whatever. Um, but I think that what happens with the narrative, the reason the narrative starts coming out is... Um, it has nothing to do with filming. It has everything to do um, with editing. Yeah. Uh, you just record a ton of stuff, and then when you sit down and you look at what you have, you go, oh. I mean, you obviously you have your through line in the sense that things are chronological, but you see certain things and you go, I could put this in, and this might be good footage, but it veers into a direction that breaks the continuity of this video, and you cut it. And it's really what you throw away, I think, at least in my very, very limited experience. Um, it's what you throw away and what you leave that really 
that's where the narrative starts developing. That's why I think that it's uh, it happens on a very subconscious level because built into all of us just with writing, I mean, just as with writing, uh, we all have a natural ability to find story, to hear story. Humans are driven by story, by narrative. Mm-hmm. So given an activity long enough, we create a narrative. Like there's, um, I saw a comedian one time and he did a joke about how the difference between how men and women drive um, and he's talking about he was on a long road trip with his wife and you know like where, whatever space he was in while she was asleep then when they traded and he woke up he's like and I woke up and she was involved in this completely interrelated relationship with every car around her like this guy's trying to cut me off this guy's driving too slow just to piss me off and I feel like what he's really touching on there is how we all are given enough extreme uh, exposure to something we build a story around it yeah, it's funny that you say that because, uh, you know, um, a couple of podcasts ago we were talking about um, how people learn best um, and how, you know, the educational system inherently teaches us the wrong set of tools in order to actually absorb information. And I think, you know, one of the, the longstanding conversations that Crystal and I have um, is about how attention span works um, and how memory is associated with narrative storytelling. And I think part of the reason why, um, like lately, for example, she had... Um, she, we were trying to understand, uh, the, the, you know, I was trying to explain to her um, the, the Apple situation with uh, the FBI. And by extension, we were also talking about 9-11 and the Patriot Act. And um, she was shocked at how much of the timeline that I remembered um, going back to, you know, um, the, the, the founding of the country and, you know, certain civil liberties and things like that, and, and, and the defining of the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. Like, I think I remember all of those things so much better. I mean, she learned the same things that I did in school, but I think the reason why I remember them is because I remember the story and not necessarily the details. So I have a, an outline by which to plug in these pieces of information, and they're not just loose pieces of information with zero context. You know what I mean? Exactly. Um, I think, and, and in some ways, that is... Um, also the limitation of our memory. That's why our memory is fluid and uh, why we remember things wrong continually is because our brain is continually structuring these stories and sometimes it has to change the details in order for us to retain the meaning of what we're trying to retain. And it's you know why we remember quotes wrong because subconsciously we've replaced the word with a word that we, that we uh, associate more with the meaning. Um, recently in, in doing research for my next article for Todoist, uh, I was reading about the difference between what they refer to as remembering and knowing. Now, these are like very common words for both of us, um, not for both of us, for all of us. Um, and they're interchangeable to some degree. But uh, in a more, I guess, scientific um, environment, uh, an environment where they're doing research studies, they've found that there's a difference between these two. And they use these two terms to be different, to remember something is it's it's a more shallow form of recall. It's mm-hmm. a more shallow form of for, of learning. Uh, we remember things via context. Mm-hmm. So so we've built a story into that in the sense that um, in order to remember a detail, sometimes we might need to remember where we were when we learned it, sure. or who was with us. All of, and I think that's why when we tell stories, we get caught up in details like oh I can't remember who I was with, because that detail. We're looking for that detail to spark the vividness of the memory that we're looking sure. for. And I think for every person, too, um, the, the, there are, the, the set of triggers is completely different. Like, I, you know, the, Crystal and I have this thing that we do 
um, because she's trying to work on her memory. So once a day at 8.30, um, and what's funny is that the, the alarm itself has now become a trigger, but it wasn't the intention. Mm-hmm. But every single day at 8.30, we recall an event or a specific day within our relationship, and we kind of you know just pick one at random. And it's funny to see how associative memory, memory works when it comes to that. Like, for example... Um, you know, I remember things much more um, via sound versus her, uh, where she associates almost everything with smell. Um, and the triggers for, you know, even specific times of day for her come from various smells that are in the atmosphere of the air. It's really interesting. It's really interesting to see how, how, how completely different our starting points are, but how we construct details around those starting points. And, th- and that brings me right to the... the second form of recall which is knowing Mm -hmm. and what you guys essentially are doing there is you're working to move those things from memory into knowing Mm -hmm. and and what knowing is knowing no longer will uh will need those triggers knowing um because knowing becomes part of who you are you it's the moment that you accept something as truth uh, and it becomes part of you but to help you with what you guys are talking about you should read um the power of habit by -hmm. charles duhigg um, he talks a lot about what you're, exactly what you're saying about a trigger, um, the three steps that are important in creating a habit, and how to make something basically into uh, where it's natural. Mm-hmm. And it's there's three stages, which is the trigger, then the action, and then the reward. And the reward is usually the step that people forget, which is why most habits don't stick. Gotcha. There's uh, also um, something that uh, I want to throw into that one, too, like a book that's been very useful to me, which... Um, I think you would absolutely adore this book, by the way. It's a book by Marion Wolf uh, called Proust and the Squid. Oh, yes. Um, I've quoted it many times. I haven't read it. Oh, really? Huh. That's, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's phenomenal. It's one of the most, I mean, don't get me wrong, like it's a pretty dense book because it talks a lot about, um, you know, uh, neurology, psychology, philosophy, and the rest of that. And basically it's using, you know, examples in her own um, scientific life to kind of show how the brain creates pathways to things mm-hmm. um, and it's a really really fascinating book and I think you would absolutely love it it's pretty dense though um, but it's dense in the way that I like it it's not dense because the language is particularly complicated but it's dense in its themes and it's dense in the fact that Marianne Wolf is is very she's a cons- cognitive scientist yeah she's a scientist so I mean she she doesn't use a whole lot of words to describe sh- you know what she's talking about um, don't get me wrong it's very elegantly written but it's also very very simple in its nature yeah, with um, the last article that I did for Todoist, um, the reason I say I quoted Marianne Wolf and uh, Proust is uh, the Squid and Proust or Proust and the Squid? Do I have it backwards? Squid. Yeah. Okay. Um, the reason I quoted that is because it came up as a source in so many articles that I found for research on my article. So I ended up using parts of her, um, and it's definitely on my list just because the word Proust is in the title. And you know, anytime you talk about memory, Proust should be something <laughs> that you refer to. And for those that don't know, um, there's many, many translations for the title. But in remembrance, in remembrance of Things Past is one uh, translation of the title. Is an epic book that Proust wrote. And there's essentially, one would say there's no plot. It's mm-hmm. um, The whole book is just memory. And to the point where he explores memory to such a degree that um there's albertine which is a woman that he's in love with every time he describes her he describes this mole on her face but every time that he describes it the mole is in a different place because it's this idea of 
you know, our memories are always changing. They say that the more you remember something, the less accurately that you remember it. God, I, you know what? I love Proust, but I find Proust to be so challenging. Um, Purposely. Yeah, and, and I, I, like I, I, I literally fight my way through Swain's way, which I'm still working on, um, just because I get really distracted by his sentence structure. Um, mm-hmm. His form is just, just magnificent. I mean, for it's full for of hinges. Any, yeah, for for anyone who 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 enjoys not just good writing but the craft of writing itself, and I do I do draw a very you know strong distinction between those two things. Like he is just a master of constructing. Um, just just amazing. But yeah, would, sorry, I'm still fighting my way through Swain's way. <laughs> I would say Proust is um Proust is a field. Mm-hmm. You don't you don't read Proust to get to the end. You yeah. read Proust to get lost in it. Wow, that's a great way of putting it. I've never heard it described that way. It's just, I mean, you, you're, you're, you're not. Sometimes you're spacing out, whatever, but you're just reading Proust to find a passage that hits you. Mm-hmm. You know, um, like religious people, the way that they read the Bible. You know, they don't read the Bible from beginning to end. They just flip it open and they look for something that relates to them. Well, Proust is my Bible. Yeah. I'm not a religious man, so Proust is my Bible. I open it up and I find beauty. And that's that's why I read Proust. I don't read Proust for any other reason. Um, he baffles me. He's um, difficult. I I have trouble believing that uh, even though the beauty of the book that it survived because there is really I mean there's a story but there's not really a story. I mean the book is tangents. Yeah. Even more so than Kerouac. Sure, sure, sure. And that's saying something considering how what is what is the actual word for that? Is there is there a literary term that de- describes a person that takes stream of consciousness yeah but such divergent journeys i mean even even if you're talking about kerouac like most stream of consciousness um writers have a pretty discernible through line to a point but kerouac just does not (laughs) well the thing with kerouac and well specifically kerouac you can almost say the same thing about proust but i think proust has maybe more of a line than kerouac does kerouac doesn't write in a linear fashion Mm-hmm. His his novels aren't structured like lines or, you know, the, the classic climax up to the top and down. Kerouac's novels are structured like a daisy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the center core is what he's talking about, which is the middle of the flower. And then he goes off on a tangent and comes back. There's a petal. He goes off on a tangent and comes back. There's another another petal. And it was purposeful. He was experimenting with form. It's interesting to hear you you talk about Kerouac, just because I know you, you know. Um, and don't get me wrong, like um, I know I, I can at, at least see some similarities between the writers that you actually like. Um, likes kind of a the wrong way to put it, I suppose. But like I look, I then look at a guy like Bukowski, for example, and I see such a completely different style um, mm-hmm. when it comes to. I mean, it's not rose petal; it's it's razor blades. You know what I mean? Well, it's and, just they're both off the cuff, though. Yeah, yeah, definitely. That's definitely true. But like Bukowski is definitely much more singular in his focus. Um, uh, he's also a, a horrible, horrible plotter. Yeah, his his <laughs> books his <laughs> books are very convoluted. Mm-hmm. I mean, not that Kerouac wasn't. I mean, Kerouac. Some of the things that Kerouac wrote about were just like, oh boy, here he goes again. Yeah, but Kerouac, at least to me, Kerouac was more fascinating um, in that sense. You know, just because his 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 streams were were so weird sometimes, uh, versus Bukowski, where there's 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 a, a simplicity or a grittiness to it that makes it kind of boring. I know I know people who like Bukowski are going to hate me for saying that, but it almost it it almost felt 
um, contrived after a while. You know what I mean? I would say um, if you pick up a Bukowski, particularly his poetry, because his poetry was better than his fiction, in my personal opinion. Mm-hmm. If you pick up one of his books of poetry and you read one, two poems, they hit you and you're like, yeah, this guy, oh, can, yeah. This guy yeah. can write. Try mm-hmm. reading the whole book. <laughs> it gets old really fast. And it, yeah. I mean, and it makes sense. I mean, the guy was a drunk. He was, I mean, and, and drunks are notoriously linear. They're sure. brutal. They barrel forward. Sure. Whereas, you know, Kerouac was taking psychedelics. He was um, taking methamphetamines. He was taking uh, smoking pot all the time. He was drinking. He was uh, all the and all of those things affected the mood of what he was writing. Sure. So uh, just that mood, alone, the, the structure and the form, too, as well. I mean, it's it's funny because I never really thought about how their addictions were shaping the writing. But that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. How could they not? Right. Sure. True. Especially um, considering that both of them notoriously wrote while they were under the influence mm-hmm. heavily um, yeah sure and and thompson did the same thing mm-hmm. you know it's really funny um it's considering how much we both love the the art of writing um it, this is probably the first podcast that we've delved this deeply into um you know some of the authors that we've liked i mean in the past we've touched upon things when they've related to other things but we've never really just gone deeply into writing itself you know what i mean yeah it's just i guess it's a matter of time just like any conversation right it's gonna yeah. come around eventually yeah 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 Exactly. So uh, we might as well ask, what are you reading? Um, Proust and the Squid is a big one. Um, I'm fighting my way through that one. Um, I have, I'm, I've been eyeballing and almost making um, bargains with Neil Gaiman for American Gods. Um, I, I want to read it again, but I don't know if I want to embark on the journey of it, if that makes sense. Um, and, you know, it's, 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 it's like getting into a certain kind of movie where you can't just watch it not paying attention. Um, mm-hmm. And I feel like right now in my current life, because things are kind of going crazy and there's a lot going on, um, I kind of need something that doesn't require my attention that way. Um, but I, I really I really want to read it again. Um, and then the last one um, that I've been pulling pieces from for the same exact reason is uh, Art of War. Hmm. Art of War. Steven yeah. uh, Pinker felt? Pinker, what's his name? Steven... Are you talking about... The, oh, I'm thinking of War of Art. Sorry. Oh, you're, you're talking, talking about, about War of Sun Art, Tzu. yeah. I'm talking about Sun Tzu. But yeah, War, uh, War of Art is also a great one as well. You know, what, you know what's funny about War of Art is that I've owned a total of five copies of that book now. Um, and every time I loan it, I loan it with the intention of giving it. I think that that's that, it's that kind of book where you're yeah. just like, here, this will help you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, and one could say the same thing about the Art of War. <laughs> sure, sure, true. Given the right context, I have actually not read the Art of War myself. I've read pieces of it, but um, right. Actually, you know, it's something I think we both read in the last week, which is um, a rare, maybe a first time that we both read the same thing, is uh, Dylan's uh, script for Zombie Rack. Hmm. And how much, how much of that are we supposed to disclose? Do you know, <laughs> I'm I'm not going to go into details, but I will say that. Um, Anytime somebody sends me a script, there's always a little voice inside of my head that goes, oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> there's a fear. And the fear was not warranted in this case. Um, what he's done is beautifully crafted. Yeah. Beautifully crafted. It's a, it's a very, very tight, well-written script. And I only read the first episode. It's written as, a, as it was given to me and you, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, it was written as a TV show. Yep. Um, but it's becoming a comic series and maybe yeah. a television show in the future i would assume is the hope 
Yeah, I mean, uh, he, he and I dove into uh, writing a, a TV series together about his life, and, and, and a lot of the, there's a cleanliness to his storytelling that I really like, um, and it comes across in, in you know, the, the first thing we wrote together was, was very comedy-driven, and this second thing is definitely not that, but it still has the same tightness to it, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I would say that uh, his writing style, and this is my very limited experience with his writing style, but his writing style has all the benefits Mm-hmm. of what you learn from formulas without any of the negatives. He's mm-hmm. he's done all the turns and everything the right way. And it doesn't feel um cliched. Everything feels fresh. Everything feels real. Mm-hmm. And uh it's it's a story about uh the military and zombies. Yep. And to be able to do that with two very I wouldn't say convoluted but two very very um overexposed genres in the sense that like we've seen how many how many things on e- on either of them uh and to do it in a way that feels fresh is it's an accomplishment mm-hmm. and i look forward to seeing the comic book and in the show notes i'm going to include a link to the indiegogo campaign um they're just raising money uh to fund the printing yeah and uh i think people should throw you know five bucks whatever you got if you got more please throw more because uh Anytime you have the opportunity to bring something cool into the world, you should do that. By the way, speaking of things that I'm reading right now, um, there's a book that sits on my bedside that I actually think you'd really like. Have you heard of a book called Steal Like an Artist? Yes, Austin Kleon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I occasionally whip this thing out and pull a point every so often. And it's funny because I, you, know, you, you and I throughout the week have conversations back and forth about you know, creative things or technology things. And I, I find that at least every ninth or tenth conversation we have revolves around something that's in this book. <laughs> Here's the funny thing about that book. I own it. I have not read it yet because I bought it with his second book, um, Show Your Work. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And for some reason, I read Show Your Work first. Ah, but, interesting. But I, for a long time, I followed Austin on Twitter, mm-hmm. and uh, he's prone to reinforce the ideas of his book. Um with the content that he shares on there. So I understand a lot of the core concepts of that book. And it's, you've essentially read it if you follow him on Twitter anyway. <laughs> right. And he's, I mean, if you're, if you're looking for, if you don't have time to find interesting things to check out on the internet that are art, literature, movie, you know, um, the kind of stuff we talk about minus the tech related, mm-hmm. Austin's a great person to find. Um, whether you follow him on Twitter, you follow his Tumblr, or you do what I do, which is just I get his weekly newsletter, which is like the ten highlights of everything that he found during the week. And he always there's always you know like eight things where I'm like, meh, not really that interested. But there's usually two that I'm like, sweet, thank you. Yeah, I feel the same way about uh, Tim Ferriss. Um, most of the stuff that he he has is just eh. But every once in a while, there's a morsel of wisdom. Uh, oh, his five better. bullet Fridays. What's that? His five bullet Fridays. Yeah, 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 yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, I'll go. I, I think it's like maybe every third, I'll find something. I'm like, there we go. There's something yeah. for me. Everything else, I'm like, that's interesting. I love that he knows his niche, mm-hmm. and I have a lot of respect for the man. But I agree with you. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. Um, speaking of other people on the internet, I was listening to this week's Back to Work. Did you listen to it? No, I haven't yet. I'm always about three days behind you when it comes to that kind of stuff. So. Uh, <laughs> What did we talk? One of the things we talked about last week was Superman. And guess what they talked about today? Uh, are you kidding? Really? 
Wow. But, and here's the shocking thing, though. Merlin did not like Man of Steel. He walked out on it. Really? And I, I have trouble. I don't know. First of all, I have trouble with people who walk out on movies. I'm like, how do you know? It's like people who quit a book early. Like, mm-hmm. how do you know what you're quitting? Sure. You know, like a movie's a movie. Maybe you're just in a crappy mood. Like, it's it feels like a uh, like a tantrum to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, a they talked about that per se. Yeah, 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 yeah. Interesting. Yeah, I found that funny. Uh, there was something else that they mentioned too. I'm like, really? <laughs> Let me ask you this, man. Um, so for the first time in your vlog, you introduced a special effect. Yeah. What was what was the reasoning and what what was your process in determining the right effect? Because you use it pretty sparingly, sparingly, but it's a pretty it's a pretty clear marker within that vlog. Um, so when I was editing that piece, um, I was looking for transitions. Mm-hmm. Um, the special effect I use is called Morph Cut, and it's not supposed to do what I did. Um, the purpose of Morph Cut is. Um, Essentially for the type of stuff that I do, you know, where you have your face, except I move my camera a lot. For somebody who doesn't move their camera and then does cuts within that stationary camera where they don't move their head a lot, um, morph cut is to smooth the transitions for where you cut things out Mm -hmm. so that it doesn't look like there's a cut there. So it looks at the frame before, the frame after, and it makes a morph frame Mm -hmm. in between. Uh, But taken to the extreme where I did it, where I was standing in one place and another, it creates this weird phase-out effect. And I just kind of stumbled upon that effect on accident, looking for a smoother transition for something. Mm-hmm. And then when I threw it into the scene where I had st- stood in different places, which was originally intended to be a jump cut sequence, when I put it in there, I'm like, that's pretty cool. Yeah. And uh, I don't know that I plan on doing many special effects in the vlog, but every once in a while, it's fun to experiment. Yeah, it's funny because it looks pretty deliberate in its execution. Yeah, which is part of the reason I kept it. Mm, interesting yeah there's a there's a lot of little things you know i've been um right now skillshare if anybody doesn't know what skillshare is we'll put a link in the show notes uh it's a place where you can where people do classes and you can learn things um on programs on photography all kinds of things oh yeah they're very very good um i live in a household full of people who use skillshare so um like alex for example is learning photography uh, I'm learning some programming stuff. Crystal's learning some marketing stuff. So there's pretty much something for everyone on there. It's pretty cool, actually. There's a great deal that they're doing right now, too. The first three months are only 99 cents. Really? And not 99 cents each. 99 cents for all three months. Wow, that's really cool. That's great, actually. So if you guys just want to use it for three months for a dollar, it's pretty cool. If you and only take one class, it's worth it. It's totally worth it. I mean, if you if you if you spend more than an hour on that site, you've more than you 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 could have happily spent ten bucks and gotten the same thing. You know what I mean? And they are not sponsoring this podcast, by the way. Yeah, <laughs> this is not <laughs> a sneaky commercial. Yeah, I was just I was just gonna say that we just happen to really really like it. So yeah, it makes sense. Uh, I just started using it to, you know, there's a lot. Premiere is dense. Oh which yeah, which is what I use to um, edit. The podcast and to a large extent, I mean, uh, the vlog and to a large extent what I use to edit this podcast um, just because I'm used to the interface. But there's yeah. so much in there. So I, I've started taking these classes. So dedication that I made to my viewers um, to learn more every day. Mm-hmm. So that's a cool place. If, if, if you guys want to learn something, check it out. Hey, what, what, kind of, what kind of guitar do you have again? Uh, the one that I play all the songs on? Yeah. That's a 
Fender Squire Special Edition Telecaster. It's a big gotcha. mouthful. Okay, because there's I, I I've always meant meant to ask you if every single riff that you have in the vlog itself is original. Yes. Ah, uh, uh, did not know that. Learned something about your vlog today. Yeah, everything's just something I make up. Though sometimes I listen to something when I'm editing, and I'm pretty sure that it's like eighty percent something else, but it is not intentional. If like there's one I did last week that I swear to God sounded exactly like a Sex Pistols song, huh. um, but then I went and listened to Sex Pistols song, and I was like, oh, okay, it's different. Um, it's just my brain. Basically, what I do there's a, there's a I'll put a link to it in the description. There's an episode of the podcast. I mean the vlog. God, <laughs> there's an episode of the vlog where I go into at in the second half of it. I go into the basic guitar process of what I do every day. Mm-hmm. Um, it's essentially I just pick up the guitar and I start jamming. And when I find a riff that's workable that you know I can play for at least thirty seconds, that's what I use for the day. Oh, gotcha. That makes sense. So it's just I I jam my way into something. It's also why sometimes there's a lot of mess ups in the guitar track because. I'm not writing a song. Yeah, but I actually kind of like that, though. I was actually going to mention that to you um, a couple of weeks ago before my brain fried and I didn't know where I was. Um, <laughs> you know, I, 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 hear, I hear the mistakes in the lines that you play, and I actually really like that they're still there. You know what I mean? Me too. Yeah. Uh, I don't I, it's, it's It's a different school of, uh, of thought when it comes to music. I'm not of the perfectionist school of music. I don't think you are either. No, even even though you have perfect pitch, you bastard. <laughs> Thank you, dude. <laughs> Never actually thought that'd get mentioned, but yeah. Um, no, I, I think I think be, because and, and it's it's not it's not anything that I did for it though. I'm I'm just lucky to have had, um, you know, the genetic predisposition and then had really musical parents. Like it, it, half my cousins and my sister all have perfect pitch, and none of them have anything to do with music, which is. Something that I guess musicians would kill for. Um, you know, my sister is a financial writer for Bloomberg. She has perfect pitch and has never used it a day in her life. <laughs> but can still tell you what a middle C is from 500 yards away played on any instrument, which is amazing. Yeah, it's crazy. I, I mean, for me, like my my crippling, the most crippling part of my uh, musical ability is I have a horrible ear. <laughs> really? That's that's really true. At least I think so. I don't know. Like I, I've never, I've never had somebody tell me it was bad or good. I just, I don't know. I, I, I've never been the person that listens to a song and goes, "Oh, cool, I can figure that out." I never tried. I just always wrote my own music. I never learned how to play anybody else's songs. Gotcha. So maybe if I had put that in, it would be different. Had, did you ever did you ever dabble with any other instruments, or has it always just been guitar for you? Uh, when I was really young, when they make you play an instrument in school, I played the saxophone for about a year. Uh, that's funny. You and I both did. I played saxophone, too. That's yeah, reeds suck. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Literally, you have to suck on a reed, people. You have to soak them to, to all hell, and then, yeah, they get funky and smell funny. Yeah, and then you open your case, and you're like, whoop, that one's ripe. Yeah, totally. <laughs> Wow, uh, I haven't I haven't thought of that smell in twenty years. That's funny. I know. I need, you know I kind of part of me wants to pick up a saxophone and see if I remember anything. It's really not that hard. I mean, my my dad still has my old saxophone, and I tried to play it about three months ago, and it's it's. I mean, it's not a complex instrument. I mean, you play guitar, um, and I play piano, which are both 
on many levels way more complex of instruments than any woodwind instrument is. As long as you can still make the noise, you can still play the instrument. And also, they're uh, speaking of guitar and piano, they're also very similar. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Like mm-hmm. I, I've never taken a lesson on how to play a piano, but for the most part, if I you sit me in front of a piano, I can figure out how to play something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, obviously nothing complex because the two-hand thing is a little bit beyond my dexterity. Sure. But when I can do some pretty neat stuff with my right hand, which, <laughs> whoa, that sounds worse than I meant it. Wow. <laughs> Moving on. Yeah. Lamb, well, tell I mean, me about Lost. <laughs> uh, well, now we're in that whole, um, what is it, the 180 minutes and you have to enter the, the numbers thing. Um you know, going going through Lost the way I'm going through it now is very different than my my previous experience, which was just watching the show pure. Um, what I mean by that is, it was in the age prior to the, the 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 almost invasive nature of the internet, so I wasn't Wikipediaing all the numbers and all the names and the meanings and all that kind of stuff. But this time through Lost, I actually am. Um, and trying to find, you know, the meanings for certain things, like Damon Linderhoff, like fighting his way through the script and sneaking in all of these really creative and, and, and meta things that he had no real intention of, of defining at any point. Like if it got to a point where the opportunity presented it, presented um, itself and he could define one of these, these meta ideas, he would, but he left so many open-ended um, and that I guess was deliberate on his part. So going through loss the second time with access to more information is actually monumentally more confusing than not having the information, which I think is a very interesting effect. I actually thought it'd be the the other way around. Which brings up an interesting point. Um, There are at least two different types of television shows. There are the type of television show um, where they know where they're going, where Mm -hmm. they have have the storyline plotted out. Going back to Breaking Bad, I would say Breaking Bad is that. Um, It's a defined set of seasons. They know where the show's going. And then they're are the shows where they just write a season never expecting to be able to do a second one. And sure. when they do a second one, they push it further and they push it further. I mean, they have no idea where they're going. How to conclude things is not something that comes up because they don't always have time. I, I also feel like they're, they're, there's there's the hybrid show in between where um, um, I, the two that come to mind are, are, or the two good examples that come to mind, and one bad example is the good example is Battlestar Galactica, um, where they made a five season arc and stuck to it. Um, the bad example is Dexter, where I think they started with the idea of a, a five season arc and then extended it because HBO wanted more, or Showtime, I'm sorry, Showtime. Um, and so those are, are I, I think at some point in one of the podcasts, we talked about um, having the discipline to stick to your guns when it comes to to how much um, control you have over the creative process of a show. Um, but I think those are two good examples of how, you know, you can you can make that choice. Like if you make a if you have a certain defined arc and you want to keep it that way, um, then, you know, what if someone offers you four million bucks a season? Do you keep going or do you stop? You know, right. And 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 that's a tough question. It really is. It's you know integrity versus uh, success. Essentially, mm-hmm. is is the battle in the mind. Uh, another great example of um, predefined arc, predefined storyline. As far as I remember, if I remember the story correctly, even down to the episodes were set before they started. Was uh, Babylon Five? Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't think I ever got past the first season of that. Not because I didn't enjoy it or anything. I just you know. I was young. Sure. Um, and then I think the Dexter thing, if I remember 
Oh, I know for a fact the first season is based off of a, a book. Yeah. Um, Dexter Dreaming Darkly or something along those lines. We'll put the correct one in the show notes. Um, but I think maybe they ran out of books would be my guess. I never made it past the second season of Dexter just because I didn't have showtime at the time. Yeah. Um, and then a lot of people told me about it, which um, I've slowly been trying to root out everything people told me from my memory so that I can enjoy it or hate it, whatever happens. <laughs> uh so to all of you out there who like to tell people things, keep it to yourself. Yeah, or at least I, I think you and I are both actually very, very good about that because I think as writers, we, we've, we're practiced in the art of not revealing, um, but building interest without revealing. You know what I mean? Um, or at least, at least I know I am on, to a certain extent because for me as a writer, like I, I have a very ve- strong vested interest in making sure that um, the people I tell about uh, whatever it is that I'm writing are really excited about it, but that I don't give too much of it away because otherwise they have no vested interest in finding out more. You know what I mean? Which is what uh, brings up a point that maybe I've been wanting to bring up eventually, uh, which is a horrible sentence. <laughs> <laughs> I hate, hate, hate with a vehement passion the current state of criticism. Ah. Uh. Criticism has become a review process. Um, well, the way that people talk about movies and they talk about books and they talk about all these things that come out, and I mean professionals, people that are doing this for newspapers, for websites, for television shows, they all are nothing but extended versions of the Amazon reviews. And sure. that's not what criticism is supposed to be. Criticism isn't supposed to be about telling me whether you liked it or not. Who cares whether you liked it? I like different things than you. It's supposed to be about... What does it make you think of? What are the thoughts that this inspired? Where can we go with this? In in what is the concept? How does this affect society? How does this affect our view of society? How does it affect the genre? It's supposed to be an expansive essay, not a reductive essay. Well, I think I think that writers, and this goes to the twenty four hour news cycle and the the bite-sized form that you know a lot of articles have to take on the internet but I don't think that most writers who want to be successful on the internet are brave enough to do that you know what I mean um, right. not because it's not a, an effective tool because yeah when I think of criticism I think of what um, you know I, I did with with literature and movies and photography when I was going through school which is it wasn't a criticism it was a critique and when you're critiquing something you go through whether you liked it or disliked it has absolutely nothing to do with your analysis of it. You know what right. I mean? Right, and that's what it is. It's an analysis. That's sure. what it's supposed to be. And I mean, there are people out there. Don't get me wrong. Clive James is mm-hmm. brilliant, and Clive James is doing what I look for. Um, but I just feel like it, you know, it's it's all it's like it's all based around money. It's not even lack of courage. Um, another thing that pisses me off is, you know what, when I pick up, this is the reason I've stopped reading Rolling Stone. When I pick up Rolling Stone and I read a review of an article and I, I mean, of an article, if I read a review of an album and I go, that sounds amazing. Guess what? That album's not going to be out for like two months because this dude got the CD before everybody else. Sure. That's BS. Yeah. Let's go back to, Hey, this is the, the album came out today. Here's my review of it after listening to it today. No more privilege. Mm-hmm. When I read that review, I should be able to go to the store or go to online and buy it that instant. Oh, yeah. I feel the same way about about movie uh, reviews, too, which is the Absolutely. reason why I've, I've boycotted movie reviews almost entirely, you know? Right. 
just because I, I don't care. I, I, you're, if I read the review two weeks before, I'm going into that movie with a preconceived notion. And that's if you're a good writer. If you're a crappy writer, then you've basically spoiled the movie for me. Right. Just will stop. You know what I mean? So, yeah, I mean, I think this, the state of criticism overall is just... You're right. I mean, it's very Amazonish. I don't know why I haven't thought of it that way until this moment. But yeah, I mean, it's it's bite-sized. It's useless analysis, and it's more opinion than is it is analysis. You know what I mean? And I think because of that, there's 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 a lack of of, of density when it comes to to how what people expect of critiques and how useful those critiques become. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. So for me, yeah, I I, I entirely avoid them. Um, for music, I I feel like at least in in certain situations i find music critiques um or critiques of albums useful um not necessarily because they're going to sway my opinion of that particular uh, piece of work one way or the other but because i really like to hear differing perspectives on music you know what i mean right uh, so, so there's a little bit of that yeah speaking of movie cr uh, criticisms rotten tomatoes the wonderfully famous review site uh, democratized review site that had both critics and average people's reviews was bought by Fandango. Wow! Didn't see that coming. Yeah, crazy, right? Huh? That is crazy. Uh, dang! I was gonna tell you something, and then my brain just totally slipped. Uh, oh, by the way, for those of you listening, Android users specifically, we will soon be on Stitcher. Um, I'm working. I've, uh, I've sent us. I've submitted us to Stitcher. So if you are a Stitcher user or a Stitcher listener, you're probably not hearing this. <laughs> <laughs> so I hadn't thought that one totally out. Useful. <laughs> you didn't quite think that announcement through completely. <laughs> if you're listening to this on our website, there we go. I found the through line. <laughs> there you go. Nice, nice tie back. Um, also, something <laughs> I wanted to bring up to you uh, today, and it's, it's been happening for the past few days. Remember last week I told you how I quit streaming um, Apple Music? Yeah, it's surprisingly difficult. Um, not because uh, I'm desperately wanting access to music that I didn't have before, but the app is so annoying. The Apple Music app is so annoying. Um, when you turn off, it's, I'm looking at it. You know, I'm looking in the settings, and I'm going, okay. I know some of this stuff is in my iTunes match. This is stuff I own. It's in the cloud. That's the only stuff I want to see because I'm not subscribed to this other stuff anymore. Mm -hmm. And for those that don't know, um, in Apple Music, which you don't own any of the music, um, you can add albums to your collection. This is so that you don't have to search for things that you want to see over and over again. So you can create a collection of things, but you're creating a collection of things that you're borrowing, essentially. Yeah. Um, so I go into the settings and I turn off uh, iTunes music, Apple music, and it takes away some of the buttons across the bottom, you know, like uh, the radio shows and all that connect tab that nobody uses probably. Um, all that's gone, which is really cool. Um, so I'm going through and I'm going, cool. Now that means I'm just going to see the music I own. No, that doesn't mean that because they're jerks. And so when you go through, <laughs> all of these albums that you've added that you were borrowing are still there. Except now when you click on them, because you think, oh, do I own this? Maybe I own this. Now it pulls up a screen and goes, your subscription is expired. So you have to systematically go in and delete every album that you don't own if you want to just see what you do own. 
Oh, wow. That's got to be solved. That's really annoying. It's so annoying that I'm going to use the Amazon Prime streaming music app and never open the Apple one again. Yeah, you know what's funny? I've, I, I, I have a Prime account, and I've been thinking of doing that for a while, but I, I don't know why I'm so locked in on Spotify. I need to just cut the cord with Spotify the, already. The, just the Amazon Prime one's free. I mean, you're not going to – you have, like, what, 20% of the music you want access to? But whatever. Yeah. So what? You, if, in reality, do we really need to hear the album we want to hear at that instant, or would just any music do at that time? Sure. For the most part, you know, any music we I, like. I don't know. I'm pretty. I'm pretty picky, actually. <laughs> I just. I. I'm so tired of having to make decisions because an app works a certain way, or because of, uh, you know, I. I just sometimes like I want to sit down. I want to write. I just need some music. Sure. Most of the time, I don't even care what I'm listening to because I'm not listening to it to listen to it. Sure. I'm listening to it to block out the noisy coffer next to me in Starbucks. So have you have you flipped then on that? Because I remember last week, um, you know, your decision to to kill streaming came from the fact that most of your environments and most of your tasks required you to have at least some level of attention or silence. No, I haven't changed on that. But I have to have to have music when I'm writing mm. um, because it's like I said, it's not even that it has anything to do with my ability to write. It's I, there's no other way to block out the noise of all the people around me. Because I always seem to end up next to the, the person with the, you know, a bone stuck in their throat, Ugh. <laughs> or the kid that's knocking over all of the uh, wireless charging things for the tables that charge your phone. There's always some kind of chaos going on around me, which mm. I like. I like the busyness, the visual busyness, but I need the noise gone. That's really funny that you say that. I have to write in absolute silence, like like pin drop silence. I can't hear it thing um and I, I i have a feeling that that comes with the the perfect pitch thing it's funny that you bring that up like crystal crystal mentioned that to me last week is that you know um i forget what we were doing but she looks at me and she says the world must be so loud to you hmm. um and and the reason i i you know that came to her was because I, I you know i never really pay attention to smells but she smells everything you know what i mean um it's like being so a super taster yeah, she's like being a super. Yeah, she can literally smell the differences between you know different grapefruits. You know, it's it's craziness. That's awesome. Um, so for me, it's it's definitely a sound thing. Like I I I can't, for example, this is why I have such a hard time watching shows like American Idol, is it's because I can't ignore notes that are that are wrong. Um, and you know, it goes back to one of the 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 a very old story um, in my life. The, the moment in which I discovered I had perfect pitch actually was, um, you know, there's this Mozart song called Rondo alla Turca, which is a Turkish march. It's a very simple piano piece that, that Mozart wrote, right? And so one of my old piano teachers would play that song um, as kind of like his, his demonstration song for his skill. And I remember at one point, um, there's a certain note in, um, in, in, in the song that he would just consistently play wrong, and I would always cringe at it. And I thought it was me um, until one day he corrected it, and I, I told him, you know, um, that I'd been hearing that note wrong, him play that note wrong for an entire year and assuming that it was me. <laughs> so that's the way the world sounds to me. Like, I can't ignore sound. So whenever I write um, on location um, and, and, and not in my house, I, I, I'm the same as you. Like, I need the visual busyness. I like to see things going on around me, but I need absolute silence. It's crazy. I write well with classical music. Um, that's I find that very inspiring. Mm. Uh, I find it interesting, though, that, 
even though you have the the frustrations of perfect pitch that you're okay with the with my guitar playing <laughs> yeah because because you're not playing for precision you know what i mean like and like if i heard um you know someone uh playing chopin for example and and they're playing a chopin piece to achieve a certain level of per- perfection then that would bug me you know but if someone was covering chopin on a cello with a uh, slide guitar and a giant piece of metal with a, a rock, then that's different because I'm listening to it for how interesting it is versus how perfect it is. You know what I mean? Right. I'm gonna I'm gonna mention something, and I hope I hope I can find find it again to share with with the listeners. There's an incredible video of this um, this man in Africa. I don't even know which country. Uh, I am aware that Africa is a continent and not a country. Uh, <laughs> But I don't know which um, country, and I don't even know if it said. But it's just uh, someone's got a camera on the street, and there's no story of why it's happening. It just starts. And he has this thing, and I call it a thing because it's it's essentially a guitar, but he's made it himself. It's it's a gas can with a hole cut in it, and then a piece of wood stabbed into it that looks somewhat like a, the, the neck of a guitar. And then he's playing on these wires. And he's playing this crazy thing. I don't even know this instrument. You can call it a guitar if you like. Uh, you can call it a banjo. I don't know. But he's playing it, and he's singing this song, and it's one of the coolest things that I've seen in a very, very long time. You have to locate that for the show notes. You have. Yeah, the, the only reason I fear um, being able to find it is it was something that I saw on Facebook. And oh, okay. You know what happens there. Oh, yeah. yeah. There's no search history on Facebook. Absolutely not. So what is it that you're reading this week? Um, I am still finishing up Night of the Gun by David Carr. Mm. I'm about 80% of the way through now. How how Has that book taken any twists and turns since you last introduced it to us? Um, I would say that I've become a... Not, I mean, I'm not saying it's a bad book. I'm a little less interested at this point because mm. um, maybe my perception, which I did express last week, was that um, it was going to be this investigative journalistic thing about figuring out what happened that night of the gun. Um, and I feel like maybe he might get back to that, but a good chunk of it is just a memoir. And it's a really well-written memoir. He's a great writer. But I've read a lot of stories about people that, I used to be a junkie. I used to be an alcoholic. And to a certain point, just by its nature, that's convoluted. Mm, yeah, sure. I really like that word convoluted this week. Yeah. Um, but I mean, maybe I would say it's the, it's a four out of five book at me, um, for me right now, just because it's written as a five, but the subject matter is so repetitive to me, especially like having read Bukowski and so many other things that, um, that knocks it down a little bit. Sure, sure, sure. I think we should introduce that into the podcast too, by the way, uh, words that we like for the week. Oh, I was going to say drugs and alcohol. No, no, no. That well, that that, that we can discuss that later. I think at some point <laughs> we can have a beer during the podcast. But uh, N A. Yeah, um. exactly. But I, I actually I, this week I've had the word inevitability stuck in my head just because mm. it's really hard to say um, quickly, um, and because I recently rewatched The Matrix um, on a big screen. Uh, my friend Harag. Uh, built like this mini theater system up in his 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 attic. Um, yeah, there's an there's an attic in San Jose. Uh, <laughs> it's wonderful. And so he built this like mini theater thing, and I I forget how amazing that movie is um, under the right conditions. You know what I mean? 
And uh, one of the, the lines from Hugo Weaving um, as Agent Smith is inevitability. And I love the way he said it. <laughs> and that, that's just been ringing in my ears for the last five days. Someone was saying the other day that um, I think it might have been the Back to Work guys, actually, because they talk about um, introducing their kids to movies that they love mm-hmm. and how the Matrix is, all, Matrix is almost um, useless to share with their children because mm-hmm. of the fact that um, payphones are almost extinct Sure. And so much of that first movie revolves around using a payphone. Sure, sure, sure. Which I, I found fascinating. It, it made me think about um, how we still to this day we say, uh, I called that person. Mm-hmm. Um, but we don't. Um, yeah. it, we never have. You and I have never done that in our life. Call was when you had to pick it when you picked up the phone and there was an operator there and you had to call out who you who you wanted to dial. Yeah, that's crazy. I can't imagine. I. It's funny because it, texts are so quick um, that it just seems it just seems so inefficient to do anything that way. You know. What I mean? Right. <laughs> well, even think about the fact we still call them ringtones, even though most of them don't ring. Sure, sure, sure. There's no bell. Yeah, I can't remember the last time I actually used a ringtone. Ringtone. Yeah. Um, right now it's the Sherlock theme, but last week it was Dead or Alive by Bon Jovi. So yeah, it's been. <laughs> I, I can't remember the last time I actually heard my phone ring. Speaking of Sherlock, isn't that coming back soon? Yeah, I can't wait. I'm, Me neither. Did you watch the I, Christmas one? I did not watch the Christmas special, actually. Me neither. I want to see it. They go back to actual Sherlock, real Sherlock time. And that's supposed to be a fanciful flashback? No, it's supposed to be like a dream sequence or something, isn't it? Yeah, I'm not sure, to be honest, but it looks really cool. Yeah, it looks really, really cool. Um, by the way, we're talking about the BBC Sherlock, um, the current one with Benedict Cumberbatch. And Martin Freeman, both brilliant actors. Speaking of Benedict, have you seen the um, photos of him dressed as Doctor Strange? He looks so much like Doctor Strange. Incredible, right? <laughs> it's, it's unbelievable, actually. The only other person that I could have imagined as Doctor Strange, which mm-hmm. couldn't have ever been Doctor Strange, would have been, um, this actually relates directly to Sherlock, uh, would have been Robert Downey Jr. Oh, interesting. Because the goatee and the you know the peppered sideburns like uh, that's it. Robert Downey Jr. looks like that too. Yeah, but I I think Benedict fits it better because he's got kind of those like beady weasley eyes. You know right. what I mean? Yeah, there's more uh, of a sinisterness. In his yeah, face. exactly. There's there's a sense of darkness to him that I think Robert Downey Jr. can't really pull off. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's interesting. That's yeah, gonna uh, that's that's a movie I'm going to um, enjoy seeing. Oh, I'm definitely in for that one. Also, I'm really curious to see how Josh Brolin looks as Thanos. I, who knew? <laughs> is that who it is? Yeah, dude. It's, oh, it's Josh Brolin of all things. And I, you know, what's funny it's is for the chin. I, yeah, exactly. Like I, I couldn't really, I couldn't really picture it until I saw him in full Thanos makeup, and I'm like, he is. He's definitely Thanos. You know what I mean? I'm because a, you, you can still see Brolin shine through the purple Titan skin. It's really weird. I've got to Google that right now. Yeah, you got to take a look at it. It's one of the strangest things. Like he looks like a frame, a, a still, a, you know, a frame straight out of the comic book. It's unbelievable. Oh my! I know. <laughs> oh my! Yeah. That is good. Yeah, I, I'm shocked. And they stuck very true to the original costume and everything. Like, they basically, they modernized the costume in such a way that didn't lose the essence of it. Right. Uh, I, I think too many comic book movies do that, and I like it when comic book Thank movies you. Don't. Thank you. you. Know I mean? Like, uh, Vision, I hated Vision, the way Vision looks. Yeah. It's just the weirdness, and I don't know, there's just certain things where, like, things that bug me. 
Thor, they did a good job with Thor. Sure. Captain America, way yeah. too much texture. Yeah, there's so much going on there. His his original outfit was so simple and so straightforward. Like, I mean, I'm even kind of afraid of this new X-Men movie that's coming out because Apocalypse doesn't quite look like what Apocalypse should to me. You know right. what I mean? Yeah, um, they kept they kept the rest of the characters true to form. Strangely, um, with the exception of Archangel, um, but Psylocke looks the same, Storm looks the same, um, but yeah, Apocalypse doesn't doesn't look right. I mean, he, and that's the thing. Like when I look at Thanos or Brolin's Thanos, I say that is what Thanos is supposed to look like. You know, at the same time, we could say you know, like if we really really think about comic books, mm-hmm. every time you got a new artist drawing a comic book, there would be something weird going on. Sure. Or it's like, oh, why does he have that now? Um, you know, famously, the Black Spider-Man. Some people loved it. Some people hated it. Sure. I loved it. Yeah, and I think about, I think about, you know, there was a certain time in the '90s when all of the um, costumes transitioned out of the, you know, '70s and '80s cheesy spandex to a more modernized tactical look. Like right. I remember. Um, you know, when X-Men um, Volume 1, it's not X-Men Volume 1, but X-Men 1 came out with, you know, Jim Lee as the artist. Mm-hmm. Um, like, the the costumes changed pretty radically. Yeah, they uh, had a lot of those, like, leg strap things. Yeah, yeah. They, with it was nothing being held. <laughs> yeah. I used yeah. to love those. That's I mean, that's the time when I was, like, really digesting comic books. And I was drawing a lot of, like, my own characters, which were just essentially rip-offs. Um, and I put leg straps and everything, those little leg bands. Um, yeah, I, I, I think that there's a certain line to certain, I mean, for example, Hey, Nick Fury looks nothing like Nick Fury, but Samuel L. Jackson is pretty much a badass Nick Fury, you know, like, uh, the only other film representation of Nick Fury we had before was, uh, what's his name from Baywatch? Oh, um... Hasselhoff. Hasselhoff. Yeah, 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 yeah. Did you remember How that movie? That? I can't even imagine David Hasselhoff as Nick Fury now that I know Sam Jackson as Nick Fury. Right? Yeah, the, the white Nick Fury is not anywhere as interesting as the bald, strong Samuel Jackson with the trench coat. Like, there's just so much grit to him that you're like, yeah, he looks like a spy. Yeah, absolutely. And, then and, he, the, looks, and he looks like a grizzled spy that has gone through, like, five wars. And it's weird for me to say that about Nick Fury because I was a huge fan of all the comic book characters that had black hair with gray sides. Sure, sure, sure. You had Tony Stark. You had uh, Doctor Strange. You had Nick Fury. How many other ones? There was a ton. They all had that gray side thing. Yeah. And that was my dream when I was a kid to grow up with gray sides to my hair. Yeah, I remember um, I I had a lot more respect for Magneto when he went to that look. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, like it it made him look more dignified and I could start to really understand his struggle because, you know, in the the history of comic books, um, Magneto has always been seen as a villain, but he's not really a villain. He's just a a guy with a really strong philosophy who won't bend. You know what I mean? Right. Um, And I think that, that, that when he got the sideburns, it made him more dignified and I stopped seeing him as a villain. That's really funny that you say that. Um, and he, he became a character that I, I tried to relate to. <laughs> right. Oh, Reed Richards, J. Jonah Jameson. It's mm-hmm. all over the place. Um, actually, I've always, I've always loved um, when I finally read the thing that explained uh, Dr. I'm Dr. Going back to Dr. Strange. Professor yeah. X and Magneto. Mm-hmm. Professor X is Martin Luther King. Yeah. And Magneto is Malcolm X. Absolutely. They both want the same thing. Neither of them are bad dudes. They just have very different approaches about how they want those things to happen. Sure, sure. And uh, 
I mean, that's very Stanley to pull some sort of social reference and bury it in there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's more surprising that... Um, I, I wonder... I, I mean, I'm sure it's deliberate. Like, I'm sure in the process of, of writing those characters and developing them, he definitely had that in mind. But I wonder how, how deliberate the parallels are. You know, like, because obviously um, with comic books, I, I forget that comic books happened... Um, during the time of a lot of, of, of civil and political turmoil in the U.S., mm-hmm. and, and how many of those stories are made to directly parallel um, some of the struggles that were going on in, in, in the country, you know? A lot. I mean, from from what I've, the little bit I, that I've read about it, you know, most of your, your African-American comic book characters were mm-hmm. created because of that. They're like, hey, you know, we got nothing but a bunch of white dudes, and that's kind of why they sucked for a while, yeah. Because they were written by white dudes. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. it's so it's like this whitewashed, uh, vanilla version of social. I don't know where they're trying to express what's going on, but they don't even know because they're not in it. Sure. Um, and it wasn't until you actually had people who were not just a standard old white dude writing comics that they started becoming fresher and more alive. You had women, you had African-Americans, you had Asians. And I think that the diversity in comics, if anything, is one of the most important things that happen to comic books. Sure. And it's not even just about the diversity, because you're right. Like, I mean, uh, you know, for, for as long as I, I've been a comic book fan, I've always been an X-Men fan. Mm-hmm. And even just seeing how how stark of a transition there was between old Jean Grey and new Jean Grey. Like when Jean Grey was first introduced into the, the X-Men team, she was she always needed saving, you know, like the, the male characters would always save her and she was always kind of flighty um, and, and, and pretty weak as a team member. And then at some point she took a hard left. And she yeah, she be- became a god. Yeah, yeah. And she, be- she basically, yeah, with the whole Dark Phoenix saga, she basically was capable of destroying planets. So, you know, it's it's funny to see how... How, how comic books overcorrect for themselves sometimes. I think that's the best way to put it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's really interesting to see, like, you know, um, when, when, a, when a comic book realizes that it got a character wrong and what it has to do in order to correct that. You know what I mean? Right. I, I feel like that, I mean, that it's, a good, it's a good way to judge um, five years ago. <laughs> you know, because it, it always happens way later. You know, sure. like government, it takes 50 years for government to catch up with what's going on with society. It takes about five years for comic books to catch up. Yeah, so at least their, their curve's a little less less severe, I guess. <laughs> it's better than televisions. Ugh. Well, that, that I think that used to be more true, but now I think it's actually, it, it's, the, you know, there are a lot of really interesting shows now, if you look around. Um, and some of the, the you know, um, the shows are, are relevant in ways that, that one wouldn't really expect. Like, I... I I didn't really give Oranges the New Black a chance until about maybe a year ago, mm-hmm. and I I absolutely love that show. It's a um, brilliant show. Yeah, absolutely. And but I didn't really give it a chance before that, and I think that it's it's more relevant than I was kind of ready for because I wasn't expecting my TV shows to be that forward thinking. You know what I mean? I think what's what's fascinating about that show as well is that it is it's it's a hard it's hard to pocket. It's hard to mm-hmm. genre. I mean, sure. is it a comedy? Is it a drama? Mm-hmm. Is it a dramedy? It, it's it seems to occupy uh, occupy a different space. Like for example, I used um, Silicon Valley, which is starting up soon, and I love that show. Mm-hmm. I used the word sitcom to describe that to somebody, and they were like, "That's not a sitcom." 
And for some reason, they believe that, you know, like a sitcom required a laugh track. But a sitcom's just a situational comedy. Yeah. And uh, so, I mean, is Orange is the New Black a sitcom? I don't know. I think it's more of a drama. Sure. Um, but it's 10 years ago. Where would you have put that? N- no network would have had a place to put it. Sure. It wouldn't have fit into a demographic. And that goes back to what we've talked about before, about um, the Internet being involved in television, in publishing shows. Um, publishing, whatever, uh, producing shows, yeah, yeah, um, has really opened things up to um, niches that would have been ignored because they didn't fit into the big, giant, generalized boxes. Yeah, sure. And I think in this day and age, like I, I think there are certain artists who have been who would have been much more successful if they had been around during different times. I mean, I'm sure, and I'm and I'm sure some of them don't care. Like, you know, um, just. Just not even because I really need to or want to, but I think you know Tom Waits is a good mention in this one too. Just because I feel like I feel like in this day and age, a guy that weird and a guy who cares that little about how he's perceived by the artistic world in general would have been allowed to be creative in ways that most other like it's it's really I'm really curious to see who he would have been if this was his era. You know what I mean? Right. It's also I mean think about like shows that that just died that mm-hmm. would have lived um sure. you know like we've talked about firefly before the firefly would have lived if if it had come out five years later sure, sure, um, sure. same thing with freaks and geeks mm-hmm. um and who knows maybe if they'd lived longer we wouldn't have the reverence that we have for them now mm-hmm. but uh i'm an optimist i like to believe that um creative people given the space to be creative will consistently make things that are inspiring yeah, I, and I, I, I actually think that that's more true and less true than most artists like to believe. I think most artists are chicken, actually, um, and there's only a very small cutting edge, um, like maybe 5, 10, maybe 15% who are willing to be brave enough to try something different, and then people who are inherently creative follow them. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. There's plenty of good stuff that comes out of that. But I think that the, the people who are real you know, groundbreakers are, the, are, are actually a pretty rare breed. Well, I would say, in my definition, the people who, the brave ones you're talking about, mm-hmm. are the artists. Yeah, that's true. Um, it's the difference between the, the specificity of the word artist and the general usage of it. You know, sure. are we talking about tissue brand tissue? Or are we talking about a Kleenex? Sure. You know, and we use artists, there's the capital A and there's lowercase a. There's mm-hmm. a lot of lowercase a's out there. Sure. There's only a few uppercase a's. And... Well, we we have um, the ability to be exposed to more uppercase A's. Yeah, and I think I think in this day and age too, uppercase A's are also being given not just more exposure, but a heck of a lot more resource and freedom. You know what I mean? Right, and even when they're not, they just go do it on their own anyways, right? Yeah, exactly, because it's 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 so much easier to get exposure these days. I mean, if you have a successful YouTube channel, you literally you can do it with zero production value. You know what I mean? Right. For and example. Look at look at Instagram. How many people are doing weird niche things on Instagram? Um, mm-hmm. Not even weird, just niche things. Um, there's so much diversity just in that one platform. For example, mm-hmm. um, uh, my friend Dan and uh, my other friend Joe, who was actually in the Crystal podcast, the, the Crystal podcast, Dogs, Crystals, and whatever, uh, Burritos mm-hmm. uh, vlog. That, uh, both of them do... Um, something that I didn't even know that was like a niche that people are into, which is they're taking action figures and they're posing them in, um, 
in action shots and making very cinematic photos, sometimes humorous. I, I've seen it done with Legos before, but they're using other action figures like um, Star Wars action figures, a lot of Star Wars action figures. Um, actually, we should plug both of them. Um, I'll put it in the show notes, but it's the Rocket Age and Plastic Renegade. If you're <laughs> into that kind of stuff, go check it out. Um, but what do you what are your feelings about those niches? Um, I I feel like I I don't I mean I I like them and I think that there's there's a definite space for them um, and I think it's it's very creative but and and this is where people are probably going to get mad at me for saying this but I feel like there's got to be there's got to be for me to consider someone an artist and not just a craftsperson um, um, big A versus little A I guess um, they have to do something that is inherently innovative. Um, and it's not to say that, that little A's don't produce a ton of interesting content and amazing artwork. I'm not saying that that's the case at all. You know, there are plenty of e- examples of, um, you know, musicians or, 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 or directors or writers or artists who produce things after the fact, like not being first to market and produce amazing things out of that. You know what I mean? Um, but for me to, to really give it the level of respect that is unique to the big A category, it has to be completely. It has to be completely original, at least on some level. You yeah, know, for, for me, I would disagree. Um, really? I'd go back to the book that you're reading, "Steal Like an Artist." Yeah, true. Artists <laughs> are thieves; they're not originals. Um, yeah. I would say that the the defining feature to me of an artist is passion. Yeah. If yeah. if you if you take risks or you don't take risks, but either way, you're following your passion. That's what defines you more than anything for me. I mean, look at Kurt Cobain. Mm-hmm. He never played anything on that guitar that was not played by somebody else. Sure, true. But that passion for the sound and that little, whatever you want to say his specific sound was, you know, the bands that he loved, that passion kind of became an innovation in the sense that he brought that sound to the masses. It's funny. I, that's the probably the fastest you've ever made me eat crow in my life. Um <laughs> I'm, not trying I'm, to make thinking, you I'm thinking about like my favorite band in all the world, which you know, for anyone who listens to this this podcast, you know, it's Radiohead, and I think of of how much they're an amalgam of other bands, like you know, Flaming Lips or the Pixies or you know, any number of other bands that have shaped who they are. And like, okay, yeah, <laughs> I mean, they've done some original stuff. Don't get me wrong, but there's not really an instrument or a noise that they've made that hasn't been made by someone else. They just put them all together better. You know what I mean? It's like Bowie too. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Bowie is considered the great innovator, but if you really dig in, you can see where his stuff came from too. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, the yeah. guy that I have trouble with is Neil Young. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's just weird things that come out of that man's guitar, and I'm like, where did he learn that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm I'm sure that there's something that he's aping. We are all aping something to some degree. Actually, which brings up another point with vlogging. <laughs> Casey Neistat is so. He's so <laughs> omnipresent in the world of vlogging that it's hard to watch a vlog, and I'm guilty of this as well, um, that doesn't in some way imitate something that he's doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that's fine. I mean, like, imitation is always the first step, right? Once sure. you move past that. Like, you and I talked about this a little bit earlier in the week, how I've I've reached a point where um, I've I've learned the things that I need to learn from Casey, mm-hmm. and now I'm I'm... I'm battering up against that barrier and trying to break out and become I'm rebellious in nature. I'm trying to break out of that, that, uh, mold. And I've, and because of that, I've noticed more and more where people aren't. And 
it's I have to keep reminding myself that you know it's an initial phase, but every vlogger out there it seems is using the same exact songs that he uses, mm-hmm. and it's driving me nuts to the point where I'm like. I can't. I don't feel anything for your video because I already have an emotion attached to that song, and it's in this video. It's almost like you're becoming defiant against the thing that you you were originally heading towards. I just I'm starving to see people be themselves. Sure, sure. And uh, so what I've done, I've found, I've been finding a lot of um, of vloggers who aren't very good, mm-hmm. but th- because they're new, I'm finding like people like this is my first vlog, and. They don't even know who Casey Neistat is. So you're watching their vlog and like, yeah, it might not be very good, but some of them have very compelling stories. And to me that I'm finding that inspiring. I'm like, this guy is trying something and he doesn't even he doesn't even have anything to copy. Mm -hmm. And that's fascinating to me. Um, That's art. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) That would have been a cool place to end, but we're not going to (laughs) end. I forget, I think it's, I forget the the exact quote because you and I are both great at remembering the ideas of quotes versus the actual quotes themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that that, 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 that that fits very well with a, you know, something that I've kind of lived with for, for pretty much my entire life, which is um, art is the sigh of the oppressed masses, um, a heart in a heartless world. And I don't remember um, who said it or where or why. But it goes back to the first blo- the first ever podcast that we did where, um, or maybe it was the second one, where we're talking about getting to the heart of things um, during interviews. And I feel like, you know, with what you're talking about with the, the, the YouTube producers um, that are new um, or even, you know, music or whatever it might be that we, we're, you know, I feel like there's, there's a sense of heart that is inherent in it that needs to exist in order for um, people like you or I to really like it because we consume art so much that we just get bored by a lack of, of soul. You know what I mean? I, I, um, it's also what, what's, what's bothering me is, is not even not even that far. It's almost like um, I just want these people to give it their all because I'm, I'm fascinated. I'm interested in them. Um, it's, it's out of a, good, a, a place of goodwill where I'm like, be you because I'm interested in you. Yeah. Um, I, I just what I'm what I'm I'm desperately hungry for is to see people find their confidence, not to have them already have it. I want to see people find their confidence. Mm-hmm. It's just fascinating to me. So maybe it's a sense of fascination, and maybe it's because you know, as both a writer and as a reader, um, you know, as as old as we get and as 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 dense as we think our sensibilities are, I think that we all want to see a hero's journey. You know what I mean? And I think in in very small ways, every single one of those quests to go from, you know, the the, the struggling artist to the confident artist is about the hero's journey. It's about defining your purpose to yourself and realizing at some point that 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 the only thing that you can do to be a good artist is to have faith in your ability to feel your way through your art and, and produce something that feels right. And I think that's, at least at least for me, that's the core of it. Um, you know, when it comes to my writing, for example, like, I, it has to feel right. And if it doesn't feel right, then it feels contrived. And it feels if it feels contrived, then it just doesn't, it feels soulless to me, you know? Right. And that's I think that's why passion is such a driving, inf- uh, not influence, but it's such a driving force. Um, because that's that's really what we're looking for is the expression of passion, mm-hmm. because it makes us passionate ourselves. Um, so I, we're going to end in a minute here because I think we're going to run long today. Um, but 
I wanted to. I, I've I've been reading this a lot lately online. Apparently, if we don't tell people that they can subscribe to the podcast, they don't know that. Did you know that? <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. You guys can subscribe. Yeah. Um, there's there's a way to do that. And if you really have trouble figuring out how to do that, like you're not a techie person, um, you can message one of us. Yeah. And, and we'll we'll help you <laughs> because we do want subscribers. We want you guys to listen. That's why we're doing this. I mean, yeah. we like each other, but we can do this without microphones. Yeah. Um, also, I, I had this idea. I haven't even thrown this out to you. Um, so Anchor, going back to Anchor, the app, which is essentially like um, exchanging voicemails. Mm-hmm. I was thinking people out there that are listening to this might have questions. They might want to engage with us more. Um, they might not have Anchor, but Anchor is a really good place for us to answer questions, you and I, because it gives us about two minutes of um, talking. And since this is a podcast, it seems like a good place to extend um, to answer questions. You guys can answer our, ask us questions anywhere, Snapchat, Twitter, uh, Facebook, anywhere that one of us has an account. We also have the accounts um, for this podcast. Uh, and what's our email address? Uh, the email address is info at randombadassery.com. Okay. We're going to put links for all of our stuff in the description today. Any, If you have any questions, ask us questions, and we're going to answer them. I'm going to make Lamb get an Anchor account. <laughs> we're going to answer them on Anchor. And if you get an Anchor account, you can reply to us back in voice. We're not plugging Anchor. I just feel like that's the best and most natural place to answer questions for you guys. That you know, Twitter. I'm I'm not going to be able to give you guys answers to any questions in 140 characters. Mm-hmm. Um, and we both have phones on us all the time. That's all we need for anchor. So uh, we're going to do that. Well, plus the other side of that too is you're right. Like given that it's a podcast, I feel like the most natural way um, for us to be able to answer any question properly um, or take any comment properly is to hear the voice of the person asking the question and to respond in kind. So it makes sense. Right. And even if they don't, if they send it to us in text, we can read the question to the anchor thing before we answer it. You know, sure. there's 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 more versatility there. And anchor is so new that it's not convoluted and impactful of content yet. Um, I mean, not packed full of useless content yet, <laughs> like so many other things are. So it seems like a really good place to start something. Sure. Um, and we'll try it. If it doesn't work, we'll figure out something else. Yeah. But we want you guys to be involved. Please. So uh, bye, guys. Bye.